and by America. It's time for real television as MMM Carpets brings you movies till the sun comes up thing. Here's your host, Gary! Welcome to Movies Till Dawn, a new podcast that's a safe space for filmmakers to talk about the fascinating and exasperating and always unusual and never quite the same thing twice process of creating motion pictures. I'm Raymond DeFolita, and I'm an occasional optimist. So here's a conversation I had uh, a, a few months ago with my friend and collaborator, uh, Griffin Dunn. Griffin Dunn, uh, as you probably know if you're listening to this podcast, is an actor. But he's also a producer. But he's also a director. And his career has been cyclical and interesting in this respect. Uh, Not only did he become kind of a movie star pretty much out of the gate with a movie called An American Werewolf in London that John Landis directed... But at the same time, he became a producer because he wasn't really satisfied with just being an actor. He wanted to make his own films. Uh, And as a producer, he and his partner, Amy Robinson, were uh, responsible for some uh, watershed independent films of the late 80s that were very, very important to me as I was uh, just starting my work in this field. Um, And then, of course, he became a director and he directed some big studio movies, Practical Magic, Addicted to Love. He also made a, 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 a kind of cult um, faux documentary called Lisa Picard is Famous, which, which is a terrific movie. I always wondered how Griffin's very singular career uh, unfolded, and that's what we talk about in these conversations. Um, and in some ways, I think part of what we always liked about each other, and we did work together, too. He was in my movie Rob the Mob, in which he plays a kind of low-budget Gordon Gecko figure, and, and he's hilarious and a, a wonderful actor to work with. But one of the things that we liked from the, you know, from the time we, we met each other is, again, that weird sense of what do we share and, how, you know, how do you connect in this, in this, in this strange business? Um, and one thing that he discusses in this interview was he never intended to become an independent producer. It just was a way that he found that he could, he could get started and, and do his thing. The reason this uh, this struck a chord with me uh, is because this kind of happened to me. I, I had a very privileged beginning in this business, none of which really wound up making any sense to my later life in, in the movie business. And, and here's what it is. So when I was uh, 12 or 13 years old, my father, Frank DiFolito, wrote a best-selling book. It was called Audrey Rose, and it was a supernatural thriller, and it got bought for the movies. Uh, and the movie got made, and the director of the movie was Robert Wise. West Side Story, Sound of Music, I Want to Live, the setup, somebody up there likes me, no, no, no. And the first Star Trek movie, by the way. Uh, and again, I was 12, 13 years old. They were making the movie, and I wanted to go to the set because I had gotten into, into filmmaking. So my father said, I was supposed to go to summer school that, that, that summer, and my father said, well... Uh, of course, I, I'll, I can take you, but just to be you know, uh, clear about this, Mr. Wise has to approve it. Now, this is very kind of typical of Robert Wise because he was old-school Hollywood royalty. He was a director from the days when the director was the absolute authority, and he could tell the head of the studio to leave the set. 
he wasn't a difficult guy, Robert Wise, but he was a formal man. And so my father did him that courtesy and he said, absolutely, bring your son. From the moment, I remember from the moment I walked on the soundstage at uh, MGM, it was then the MGM lot, it's now Sony, I walked into this huge soundstage and the, the, the view of the set being lit, the smell of the carpentry and, and the, the wood being cut and the people doing the work, the whole thing was so cool. It was so magical. And as soon as I was walked towards the set, and I saw the actors rehearsing, and I saw the DP, who was Victor Kemper, uh, lighting, and I saw Robert Wise sitting on his chair, overseeing everything with his arms folded. I went, this is, this, I want to be here. I want to do this work. And it was funny because I, I knew it right away, and I told my father I want to go back. And he said, well, go ask Mr. Wise if it's okay. And, and I did. I, I went up to him and I said, I want to learn what you do. And he said, well, I'd like you to do it. He said, take, take this chair and you can sit next to me. I later found out, because we got to know him better, that this was who he was. He loved giving back to an industry that had given him so much. He was one of these guys who showed up you know, during the Depression in Hollywood, had no idea what being a film director was going to be. He just wanted a job, and he wound up being a projectionist. He found himself in the studio system. He got promoted to being a film editor. This was how Hollywood used to work, and Hollywood gave him a tremendous life, and he liked to the idea of giving it back. So he welcomed me on his set, and guess who didn't go to summer school? That was a 110-page script that shot I believe for 85 days. Every set was built at MGM, except for uh, they did two weeks of location work in New York. And uh, the day worked like this. So everyone would come in at 8 a.m. and there would be a rehearsal and a discussion and a blocking. And then the, the crew would light the set. And then there would be lunch. They did not get a shot off before lunch. After lunch... We came back, and they'd start shooting. And for the next four or five hours, they would do two pages of work. After the two pages of work were done, and he shot quite a bit. He, he liked doing a lot, of, a lot of coverage. He was not an editor who became a director who liked to only take what he knew he was going to edit, which is a certain form of old-school editor who became a director. No, he was an editor who became a director who was like, don't let me stay in the cutting room with not enough material. So he worked. Uh, he worked everyone hard. And yet this day somehow ended around 6 p.m. Then you went to dailies. Dailies, you know, which is, I don't even think, a term that's used anymore, but you went to a projection room, and you, you watched what was done the day before. But, uh, but martinis and hors d'oeuvres were served. So we would go to a projection room at MGM, and martinis and hors d'oeuvres and an hour plus of material were watched. Um, and I thought as a kid, I said, this is the most elegant work in the world. This is what I want to do. What could be more, what could be more formal and lovely and, and gentlemanly? And, and, and uh, you know, f- it, it just seemed to me like a royal kind of experience to be a film director. So that's how I got into trouble. I had no idea that what I was going to wind up doing was trying to raise money for movies, desperately trying to get them shot in too little time. I've never shot a movie that took more than 25, 26 days. 
we've, we've never not shot in the morning. I mean, you pretty much are shooting from the second you get there, right? I mean, it, it, there's just no... It, none of that translated into the life that I have had as a director at all. And it never will. In fact, I don't think it really does at all for anyone anymore. It, 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 that's, a, that's, a, that's dead freight, that world. But it, it was a beautiful introduction to a world that I never got into because basically studios stopped making the movies that I thought I was going to get to make. And then the independent film world was how you could get to do it. So this is where Griffin comes in. As I was raised in a Hollywood that was soon to be extinct and had to find another way of doing the work that I wanted to do, um, so did Griffin, who grew up in the same Hollywood and was very much a part of it through his family, have to find his own new way of doing it. Um, He became one of the groundbreakers of New York indie film of the 1980s as a result, uh, and he helped show a lot of us the new way of getting stuff done. And that was my introduction to knowing who Griffin was, uh, and I'm delighted to have become his friend. Here's part one of my conversation with Griffin Dunn. See, this is the thing I was, I was just saying that, that you, and, you and I share, is you're, you're identified mostly to people as a very New York presence in New York mm. actor producer but as as I did you grew up here right in right. LA yeah and, and you really grew up in the in the period I got sort of the tail end of it um, uh, of, of the real kind of old studio Hollywood royalty the system as it mm-hmm. still existed which I guess was in the 60s when you grew up yeah well it was it was when I was a little kid too young to have observations like I in the perspective I have now I, I was really seeing these legends on their way out, you know. I was seeing, you know, Selznick, who probably by that time couldn't get a movie made, and uh, William Wyler and Wellman and, all, you know, and, and from the directing side. And then there would be Dennis Hopper, who would be like the young kid in uh, Giant, who would then, in by 67, change the, the movie business sure. as we know it. Uh, you know, he straddled both sides. You know, he, he really came up through the system. Um, and these are all crossing at within your parents' my social parents, set. Yeah, yeah, my parents were very, very social. Because at that point, your father, before he was a writer, was a producer. He was a producer of television, um, too, which was mystifying because uh, no one from the television business was at our house. There were all these sort of, you know, Vincent Minnelli's and old studio heads and the writer of Shane and, you know, people, really, really accomplished people, but who were being sort of aged out. They they didn't see what was going to be happening to them. You know, yeah. they were still making Dr. Doolittle right. when Mike Nichols was making The Graduate. Yeah. It was sort of the last hurrah for these people. Yeah, it, it's interesting because I remember as a kid, sort of realizing uh, uh, that some of my parents' older friends, like, they grew up in the business. The whole business happened here because movies were pretty much only shot at studios. Right. Because it was strictly a factory it town. Was a, it's a working town. And that's why, you know, we moved to New York because Los Angeles, as many people growing up, find their own hometown, be it Kansas or wherever, they're, they're a place you're supposed to live. Yeah. Leave. No matter where I was from, I knew I had to leave it, you know, and... New York would be the the end all of the greatest destinations. So, um, but when I come back, it's always for work. It's always to ask somebody for money. It's always you know trying to get something going. Right, right. And uh, it doesn't have that 
that studio support system that even I was aware of the comfort that they all... Everybody felt relatively secure. They were employed. They were employed. Yeah. Everybody had a job, you know. Nobody thought about being put out of work. And, um, and, and it's, it's a nice thing to be employed. I've only ever been mm-hmm. employed once. They mm-hmm. hired me to do the, the movie for ABC. I didn't have to put it together. I didn't have to cast it. I didn't have to figure it I was like, this is a whole new world to yeah. me. Like, and, and, then they, and then it's been a year and no one hired me again. Right. So, right, but I was like, but the contract directors, that's what they did. That's they put all, them on a thing. They, you right. Know. And also, you know, they they protected you. They There was a lot of dark, horrible things that, that went on, too. But as far as keeping it insular from the outside world, you know, you could be gay, you could be a drug addict, you could be whatever would be on TMZ now. They would look after you. Nobody really cared about your sexuality. Nobody right. really cared how you lived your private life, as long as you can get to work on time, and if you got into trouble, you know, they would try to protect you and keep it out of the papers, whatever it would be. I mean, yeah, it was and very was much some, of a family yeah. atmosphere about that. So when you went to New York, it was to it was to be an actor? To be an actor. I went uh, probably a little earlier than I planned because I, 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 um, I was in high school and, I, and I'd gotten kicked out. And I came when I was, came back and I was like 17 and I started to, you know, try to get work and, and everything's going to be television and bit parts and in various things and I kind of thought I was enormously snobby and I wanted to do theater and I didn't want to stay in Los Angeles um and kind of you know have that kind of route to it so so I I really only lasted about six months after I got out of school and uh went to the neighborhood playhouse and um and that was just pretty much the rest of my education was there Sanford Meisner Sanford Meisner had just had his larynx taken out from cancer. He was speaking through one of those boxes. Right. Which was obviously terrible for him, but really not good for me either. I really worshipped this this guy. I mean, I knew all the stories of him and Harold Klerman and Stanislavski and, you know, all the the group theater kind kind of things. So I got him, like, I think he only lived another year. But he observed, and he was there in the classes... And he would talk like that, and he would come to her like this. But it was still an honor that, you know, he hung in just long enough for me to to see him in action. Right. But then it's it's interesting to me, too. You've done so many different things. You're a producer, a director, you're an actor. But a lot of them cross. And fairly early on, it seems to me, because isn't Chilly Scenes of Winter, how old were you in that when that movie? This is a beautiful movie, by the way. Oh, thank I haven't, you. I remember seeing it on the Z Channel. Uh-huh. Remember the Z Channel? LA's first cable uh-huh. station. I remember uh-huh. seeing it. And, but but you're, you produced that. I produced that. You had um, to have been in your early 20s. I was 23. And my partners, Mark, Rob, Mark Metcalf and Amy Robinson, we they were older than me, but not by too much. And all three of us were completely uh, out-of-work actors, just totally unemployable. And we hated that feeling. We hated that feeling of, like, sitting around for the phone to ring. And I was nowhere near. I didn't have an agent. I didn't um, have a body of work. I worked at Beefsteak Charlie's and collected my tips and, you know, went to acting class. At that time, I was studying with Uta Hagen, so that wasn't so bad. But the three of us were, were avid readers, and Amy turned us on to Ann Beattie who at that time was just was, was, was writing on a fairly regular basis for The New Yorker. And her book, first book had just come out, Chilly Scenes of Winter. What do I want? I want to marry Laura. That's what I want. I thought everybody knew that. Charles loves Laura. 
Laura likes Charles. I want to sleep with you. Wait a minute. Charles would marry Laura tomorrow. Wait a minute. <laughs> But Laura's already married to a guy called Ox. We read it as soon as it came out and just fell in love with it and saw it as a movie. While we had no idea how to produce a movie, we thought if we can get Ann Beattie to agree to option it to us, we would figure it out. So we looked her up in the phone book. She was a teacher at, at Harvard. She was not that much older than Mark. Um, and we got in the car without making an appointment, and we drove to Cambridge. And we called from the, the phone booth, um, like at the corner of her building. She was listed in the phone book. And she said, okay, come on over. And she said it was like three of her characters walked in her living room. <laughs> and we got completely hammered. And she, uh, I think Mark made out with her dog. And, <laughs> and we got completely hammered. And she said, I only have one. You can option the book, but I'll option the book to you. But um, I want to play a waitress with a beehive hairdo in the movie. We went, done. done. <laughs> so she calls up her agent, a literary agent, whose name was H.N. Swanson. It was called Swanee. He represented, you know, William Faulkner and Hemingway and all the all the great novelists who tried their hand in Hollywood. Right. He said, Swanee, I'm going to let these kids have the rights to Chili Scenes of Winter. And you could hear him screaming at the other in the line. What have you done? What have you done? <laughs> he goes, but they're going to let me play a waitress with a beehive hairdo. <laughs> Anyways, he stuck to his word. But And it took us, you know, about two years. But we sort of learned on the job, and we were always going to give ourselves parts in it. And we got this, the book to to Joan Micklin Silver, and she'd just done Hester Street, sure, which yeah. had even been nominated, I believe. And Joan Micklin Silver's Chilly Scenes of Winter. <laughs> Now I'm no longer alone. A comedy about people trying to connect in a disconnected world. I don't think you're that great. As a matter of fact, there's quite a few things about you that I don't like. Yeah? Name one. And it was the very first round maybe the second round of the Vogue of women directors where studios felt really good about themselves. So they hired, there were maybe two women directors at the time, both named Joan, Joan Tewksbury and Joan Silver. Right. Oh, I think there was a Joan Darling, too. Joan Darling, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't think that movement had come about since Ida Lupino, you know. Um, it just wasn't wasn't happening. So, uh, and Joan wrote the script relatively soon. Uh, at 20th Century Fox. Amy and I and, and Mark would be flown out for meetings, first class, stay at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, and I would get back in the limo to go back to the airport to go home and change into my little paper hat and um, sanitary gloves to sell popcorn and, and Cokes at the Radio City Music Hall. <laughs> <laughs> what did what did Fox... Uh, I, what did they make of what us? What was their lore? Like, I, what did, how did you get... Oddly, only, it was just, we were so lucky. There was a woman named Claire Townsend. She was a studio head. She's no longer no longer with us. And she wasn't that much older than any, than us. And she was like a, um, God, I'll look back, she probably was about 25, but she was like a, sort of a young genius. She had, she was like, compared to like a female Thalberg kind mm -hmm. of um, person. And real smart. And this is, again, this is like, even though the late 70s, this is like people wanted to make, actually make movies, you know? And Fox was owned by Fox. And, you know, it hadn't, it was still a altruistic time, you know, too. So they, uh, she believed in us. And that was all we needed, you know? And we really 
loved her, and she loved. I mean, we became really close friends. So I don't know. They got us, gave us a pass, you know. Hmm. And they they let us, and then Clara left for United Artists, and she brought us with her. They let her uh, take this script to United Artists, and then they got it going right away. Hmm. And it was, you know, United Artists was then that the company that uh, you know made the Woody Allen movies that did. It was still the Arthur Krim. It was exactly, yeah. you know, and. Uh, the original, yeah. The original, which was come in on budget, the vision is yours. Just don't go over budget. So it was uh, an incredible time to be there. The immediate studio heads, we never saw Krim or the other guys, were very excited about an incredible movie that was very expensive going over budget, but they knew it was, it was going to be huge. And it was called Heaven's Gate. Yeah. And they were so excited about this movie and I go God well sounds, what's it what's it look like you know because the deer hunter was so amazing he goes well, uh, well we haven't seen it actually but um, you haven't seen the dailies <laughs> no he doesn't send the dailies but we think this is and it was taking so draining so much of their money we were completely left alone matter of fact we were ignored so we, we actually and we went to the very first screening where the studio saw it at the same time as the audience. Was it the, the four and a half hour? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And it was at the Coronet Theater in uh, East, in East, whatever, on Third Third Avenue. And with an intermission. And as soon as the intermission happened, you know, we were in the United Artists section and the studio was in L.A., but the, the screening was in New York. The brass shot up out of their seats and ran, like, out of the front page of a Billy Wilder movie just to those phone booths going, it's a disaster, it's a fucking disaster, we're going to die, sell, sell, sell. The American film industry is still trying to cope with a major news story out of Hollywood this week. A $40 million film by an Oscar-winning director may be the biggest bomb in Hollywood history. Get the story now. Writer-director Michael Cimino, who spent two years and $36 million... And the only people that stuck around after the intermission were people like us just who were voyeurs of disaster. So you kind of, you be, you you became an accidental producer. You're an actor who became an accidental producer in a sense. Well, yeah, I, we became, um, wh- what drove us to it was was just the the fear and frustration of, of not working. Right. But I still couldn't get an acting job until this movie, of which I gave myself a part that I don't think had screen time of more than a minute and a half, but it got the biggest laugh in the movie. It got it was mentioned in every review, this right. minute and a half thing. And then I started to get jobs as an actor, and I'd be able to kind of go back and forth. Because American Werewolf in London follows that quite closely, I think. Yeah, it does. A couple right? years later. Exactly, exactly. You've been unconscious since you were brought in three weeks ago. Three weeks? Now, you've suffered some cuts and bruises, lost a little blood, nothing serious. Black and blue for a while. We'll have some dueling scars to boast of. That lunatic must have been a very fierce fellow. They say a madman has the strength of ten. Lunatic? We've given you a pretty strong sedative. Rest now. Nurse Price will see to all your needs. You rest. Wasn't a lunatic. Beg your pardon? It's an animal. What? A wolf. But but he, nobody even... John never even... Certainly never saw Chelsea in the winter. I'd never seen, and there was nothing else to see. I don't know. He never had me read. Why, do, why did he hire you? I, 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 I ask him that all the time. <laughs> I don't know. I thought you were a nice kid. I don't know. Because I don't think, you know, we talked for maybe 15 minutes, and I'm sitting there waiting to read, and he goes, oh, there's, there's nothing to read. Anyway, goodbye, and then I get home, and I get a call going, I'm going to have a, a guard is going to bring, a security guard's going to bring the script. 
and he's going to stand outside your apartment. I want you to read it right away and tell me if you want to do it. Oh, he goes, I just got one question for you. Are you claustrophobic? So I figured it was a movie about a guy trapped in an elevator or something. <laughs> and uh, I didn't know the title or anything. And, of course, the answer to that question is, no, I'm not. If he said, are you scared of fire? I would have said, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm, a, I'm actually very fond of it. I'm very fond right. of fire. <laughs> and I love claustrophobic <laughs> feelings. So, so anyway, yeah, then, then he, he just said, well, you want to do it? Mm, I'll never understand why that happened. When I became very aware of you was in the mid-'80s. It, it feels to me, and it felt to me at the time, too, that there was a certainly independent film existed prior, but the kind of the beginning of it penetrating the mainstream mind started to happen. And I always saw your name associated within that with mm-hmm. Baby It's You, and then and then I guess After Hours. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It feels to me like you're cross-pollinating in these. After Hours is something that you produced and you starred in. And, and we use the pretty much... The same crew from Baby It's You just came right over production every just almost every department, and Michael Ballhouse when when Marty signed on, you know it was always the question. I mean, one of the things that motivated him was to prove that he could make a film to them to studios that he could make a film in on budget and on time and you know with 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 in a, on a tight budget. We. Uh, said, listen, Marty, we want you to meet this guy, Michael Ballhouse, and Jeffrey Townsend, and as a production designer, and a union called NABIT. And he goes, what's NABIT? I went, well, it's not <laughs> IA. Right. And uh, and he just when fell in love with them. When did NABIT go away? Yeah, it just went away. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, he fell in love with everyone. He took the whole the whole department on to whatever the next one was. Yeah. I mean, just everybody. Last Temptation, I think. I think it was Last Temptation, yeah. too. No, um... No, it wasn't, because that's how we got him. We gave the script to Marty first, who was the very first person, and Amy Robinson had been an actress in Mean Streets. So we had a direct line, and we both shared the same lawyer as as, as, as Marty. We sent it to him knowing that he was uh, going to be making Last Temptation, and we thought it would be after. We realized we'd have to wait too long, so we just, just sort of moved on. And then they shut down the movie, Last Temptation, and it was with Aidan Quinn at that time. And he was on his way back from Casablanca, you know, while they were shooting it in Morocco. And we were at the top of their pile, of his pile on the flight back. And then he landed and said, yeah, I want to do the movie. Did you did you develop it? Was it developed for you? It was something Amy found it at, uh, I felt like it was, but it, um, he wrote a script as a like a thesis for uh, Columbia Film School. Dujan Makaveev, he was an assistant to, Dujan Makaveev was a, a Serbian director. And we were, they were at the Sundance Lab. Redford had just started this this program. And Dujan gave the script to, to Amy and goes, you know, my favorite student wrote this script. You should read it. And she read it and went, oh, my God, would Griffin be great in this? Mm. She says, I found her next movie. And when she came back, I read it in a state of such anxiety and just roaring. I mean, it was so, I, 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 it was so nerve-wracking to read that I had to stand up and I turn the pages with my toe. <laughs> and I go, oh, my God. Oh, oh. What type of pot is this? It's Colombian. That's a lie. What? This isn't Colombian. I don't even think it's pot. That's what the guy who sold to me said it was. Well, the guy who sold it to you is a liar. So are you. That's shit. Don't get upset. I just won't buy it from him anymore. That's horseshit. Are you all right? 
Where are those plaster and Paris paperweights, anyway? I mean, that's what I came down here for in the first place. Well, that's not entirely true. I came to see you. But where are the paperweights? That's what I want to see now. What's the matter? I said I want to see a plaster of Paris bagel and cream cheese paperweight. Now cough it up. Right now? Yes, right now. They're in Kiki's bedroom. Then get them. Because as we sit here chatting, there are important papers flying rampant around my apartment because I don't have anything to hold them down with. I remember seeing After Hours, maybe, maybe the first night it opened. It was at the theater on 14th, or like, no, Broadway in 12th, you know, that, yes, that yeah. big corner theater? Yeah. 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 Hysterical. Yeah. yeah I, it's I, now I, an Equinox. Probably. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, it was, it was great, and the audience was, I, I, I probably, I don't think I'd ever heard an audience so exhaust themselves with laughter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Have you seen it lately? Do you watch your, your older, your older films? I, I, I haven't seen it. In quite a long time, but when I did see it, I was amazed at how it held up. Yeah. And, you know, it's anachronistic, and Amy and I have a sort of a idea of how to kind of make, I wouldn't say a sequel, but make, I guess it would be, but but it's the kind of thing that the the theme of, of being lost in your own city and the adventure of leaving your house to try to get laid... And ending up down a rabbit hole, that that is never going to change. Yeah, yeah. So I think that there's another life for that movie. There's a, there's another film that's that with a similar. Have you ever seen a Bill Murray movie called Quick Change? Yes, I he, just they, they rob a bank and they just can't get out of New York. So that's I just, the whole thing. I know, yeah. and I just, and I had <laughs> matter of fact, I had lunch with Howard Franklin not two weeks ago, who wrote and directed that movie, and he said, and I just met him. I, I hadn't. He goes, you know, uh, I wrote that movie with completely influenced by After Hours. Sure. Um, that used to become, it became for a while an adjective for the kind of movie, mm-hmm. you know, which was, you know, very flattering when you could just shorthand how people would pitch their movies. It's like an After Hours. After Hours meets, of, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. exactly. How, how quickly was that film shot? Because I know that Scorsese talked about wanting to show that he could work economically. That's right, yeah. yeah. I want to say like 28, 29 days. Right. Which, at the time was breathtaking how quick I mean now I was in now uh, everything's shot in 20 everything yeah. is I was I was in a movie Dallas Buyers Club and 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 that there's that you know won all these Academy that was shot in 30 days or something you know it's it's that's the norm yeah. I think because of the the uh, the equipment and stuff it makes it much much more easy much yeah. easier and it was all location, obviously. Yeah, in our case, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was all, uh, yeah, real location. But we built sets for within locations. But we were shooting in an area of Manhattan, which at that time was deserted. I mean, truly, truly deserted. You wouldn't see a soul. It's kind of remarkable to think about that there'd be places still in the island of Manhattan where you could like lie in the street and yeah. nothing had run over you. Was that where you were shooting, actually, Tribeca? Or? We start. We we crossed borders into Tribeca. We were on Crosby Street for for a lot of it. I still have moments. I lived briefly in in um, in Soho not long ago, and I would have moments going, "Wait a minute, that's the building we shot." You know, there were so many locations. I'll still come right. across like a little nook or cranny, and I'll see you know from a certain angle. I go, "Oh, that's the place." Right. But we were shooting on. I pass the street all the time, and it always makes me smile you know marty was it was and is very allergic to cigarette smoke so people knew not to not to smoke around, you know within miles 
um, and if I did sneak off and have a cigarette, he could smell it like on my clothes. You know, right. it was it. So and th- there was just no. There were no gawkers watching a shooting. No, all the windows of the lofts all around. The lights all seemed to be dark. There's a scene where I drop to my knees and it's this big crane shot and I go, what have I done? What do you want from me? I'm just a computer pro. All I wanted to do was get laid. Uh, Marty goes, okay, do it again. But really scream it. What do you want from me? All I want to do is get laid. And a window, like at the very end of the street, comes flying open, those enormous loft windows. And there's this like crazed looking sculptress going, shut up, just shut the fuck up. Shut up. <laughs> and Marty, without missing a beat, looks up and goes, tell her to put out that cigarette. <laughs> that was the end of part one of my conversation with Griffin Dunn. If you enjoyed listening to Movies Till Dawn, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at moviestilldawnpodcast at gmail.com. You can access these conversations at iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, YouTube, as well as our website, moviestilldawn.transistor.fm. If you'd like to see some videos pertaining to the guests of each episode, please visit my blog at moviestilldawn.blogspot.com. And please feel free to follow me on Twitter at RealRDEF. That's R-E-E-L-R-D-E-F. All interview material and audio clips are covered by the Fair Use Copyright Act of 1976, in which allowance is made for fair use for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, education, and research. Music